0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our guest is John Dixon, who is um, joining us via Skype from, are you in Cambridge or Oxford? I'm in Oxford. In Oxford, okay. I should have known that you're on the theological side of that thing. Cambridge tends to be the biblical studies guy, so anyway, that's okay. And and our topic today is truth and beauty. Now, John is a founding director, which means you go back to the beginning, Mm -hmm. of the Center for Public Christianity. And because I'm in the United States, I've got to say this, and this is center spelt the Commonwealth way, okay, so, um, so if you spell it, if you, if you Google it as Center, C-E-N-T-E-R, it will probably Google back to you, it's searching for Center, C-E-N-T-R-E, and you'll be off and, and running. Tell us a little bit about the Center first before we dive into our topic, and, and, and what uh, motivated you um, to, to be a founder?
0: Well, the, uh, the the beauty of a Google search for us is you just have to write public Christianity from anywhere in the world, and we're the top list. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, so uh, you'll, you'll find us, whether it's Center ER or Center RE. <laughs> and we, we won't go down that way, because I, I know you'll win that argument. <laughs> um, so, uh, look, the Center for Public Christianity, which we uh, abbreviate as CPX, as you well know. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and the X stands for a Greek. Kai, Kai, that's uh, right. Yeah, Christianity. So we, we need to explain that. That's um, right. So CBX was the brainchild of a couple of scholar friends and I many years ago. Actually, we just lamented the way, whenever church leaders got up in the media, it didn't seem to cut through. They were faithful and you know lovely, but there wasn't a sort of creativity. There wasn't quite the intellectual rigor. And we were just sort of embarrassed by church leaders in in the public media. And so we had this dream maybe 25 years ago was when we thought of it and then almost thought nothing of it. Wouldn't it be great, we thought, to have a group of scholar communicators who could step up into the public media, the mainstream media, and speak of the Christian faith, write for the mainstream opinion pieces, uh, produce documentaries, and so on. And... um, it was years later, uh, that we were offered a grant. I was about to accept a job, uh, here, here in the UK, actually. Hmm. And, uh, and a, and a lovely Christian benefactor in, the, in Australia said, Oh, England doesn't need you. Um, uh, <laughs> tell me what you, uh, what you would want in your dream scenario. And I described this center for public Christianity. This was 11 years ago. Hmm. And, um, he said, give me 24 hours. Well, He rang back in about twelve hours, with more than enough money, seed funding, to kick us off, and we got offices uh, in the centre of Sydney. Lovely offices. We were able to yeah, and we were (laughs) able to employ um, uh, immediately some other scholars and support crew, uh, TV and radio specialists. And then we just you know arrived at work one day and said, okay, let's write an opinion piece. How do you write an opinion piece? We thought. (laughs) And uh, we didn't know if the mainstream media was going to take it. And we just sat down and we wrote about the kind of news of the day. I can't even remember what the first thing was, but we wrote a classic 700 word mainstream uh, op ed and sent it to our uh, very famous in Australia, Sydney Morning Herald, which is sort of the equivalent of the New York Times. Kind of, you know, thinks of itself as intellectual, uh, maybe a little bit lefty. Uh, and, and we just we just dropped in an, an op ed and um, they took it. Hmm. And we nearly fell off our seats. They they, they thought we were grown ups, um, and um, so we wrote more and more. And then the calls from the uh, mainstream radio came and asked us to comment on stuff. Um, we'd already already written books over the years, and I'd done one public documentary for um, national TV. Uh, But that gave us another platform to start doing more documentaries, write more books, continue to write for the media and appear in the radio and TV as well. And it's just it's gone beyond our wildest dreams, really. Um, The relationships we have with um, the broadcasters in Australia is pretty good. And although uh, Australia is not known for being really um, loving toward Christianity, um, they are interested in sort of creative ways of thinking about the Christian faith. And that's what we're trying to trying to offer them. Hmm. From every angle imaginable. Yeah. So we don't. We, we're not just doing traditional apologetics, though. In some ways, we look like we're doing apologetics. We're just trying to do what we call public Christianity.
1: Yeah, you're engaging. You're you're yeah. you're engaging. in cultural engagement.
0: Yep. With whatever is the thought of the day. Mm-hmm. So we're just as happy talking about uh, Bach, and we've we, we've just recently employed a, a wonderful uh, former journalist who's now on staff, who's a um, classical music reviewer, hmm. uh, and uh, and now he, he does beautiful reviews of um, concerts and so on. Uh, we do movie reviews, um, but also we do straight-up stuff where we interview New Testament experts like your good self about the resurrection. <laughs> we uh, we sometimes flip interviews that are for us at a time we don't want to do to you, as you may remember. <laughs> uh <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. we won't get anyone in our country to speak to this. We'll get that American to do this Christmas piece.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was too early for us. We thought it was a good time for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it was I guess four in the morning, your time, or something like that. I was, that was that was an experience. <laughs> yeah. So So
0: that's what we do, and uh, and it's just wonderful. I've got a great bunch of colleagues, uh, all of them like really highly trained in their discipline, and, um, yeah, so how big a group is it? Uh, not it's not big. Um, so we are ten staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of that's just academic sort of uh, what we call content providers, academics who are speakers, you know, which mm-hmm. is always the a difficult thing to find an academic who, who's very comfortable in the media, <laughs>
1: who can communicate. Um, yeah, exactly,
0: <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. But we've found we've found a few from quite a good range of disciplines, mm-hmm. and then there are those support staff, so the the people who are behind the cameras and can edit everything that we do, mm-hmm. um, and you know keep us in order and on time.
1: Yeah. So, um, headquartered in Sydney, Australia, of course, just I mean blocks from the Sydney Harbour, which is one of my favorite spots mm. in all the world. And mm-hmm. uh, I walk
0: uh, past the opera house every day to work.
1: That I, park in, is, that I park in the opera house car. Don't go there.
0: <laughs> and the sun is normally just coming up as I'm, I'm walking up from the opera house. I'll take a photo and send it to you. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll, oh, man. I just, yeah, you and know, and
1: I, just, I, I, thou shalt not covet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh Well, great. Well, our topic today is truth and beauty, and kind of the way I want to go into this, and the reason why I wanted you to talk a little bit about the center before we did it is because you've really tried to orient what you do around a delivery of a perception of Christianity that gets into the area of what I'm going to label. It may not be the best label, but what I call aesthetics. In other words, really thinking through... What does the packaging of Christianity look like? And uh, and sometimes I think Christianity is portrayed as if it's just kind of it, well. On the one hand, it's kind of this naysayer, you know, whatever it is, we're just going to say no, don't do that, or or it's um, it, so it's combative, it's uh, and 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 it's what we're against. But actually, the backdrop of Christianity is about the orderliness and the beauty of the creation that God has placed us in and the preciousness of life and those kinds of ideas. And so you all have talked about truth and beauty and adorning what you do and how you do it with this kind of emphasis on truth and beauty that I think is a set of categories we don't think enough about. So um, talk a little bit about where that came from and and what motivated you to kind of go in that direction and how you're watching it play out. Because I think it it crashes a stereotype. And I actually think one of the things that Christianity needs to do these days is kind of crash the stereotype that's out there about it. Whether whether the stereotype is true or not, the perception is there. And so you've yeah. got to deal with that reality. So with that as a very open-ended question. Go wherever you want.
2: (laughs) Well,
0: I mean, what what is beauty? Um, And if we start with a kind of philosophical concept of beauty or aesthetics, it was the great um, philosopher Immanuel Kant uh, wrote a lot about what he called aesthetics or beauty. And he gave a lovely description of the whole study of beauty where uh, he said, seeing something beautiful is experiencing the harmony between the orderliness of the real objective world and the rational orderliness of our minds. When our minds spot something real out there objectively that is orderly, there is a, a resonance, a kind of feedback between objective orderliness and rational orderliness that excites, that satisfies, that stimulates, that illuminates. That was his idea of beauty. Mm. I think it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually thought uh, it was a good pointer to the divine. I mean, Immanuel Kant is sometimes interpreted as a little bit skeptical, and he was um, skeptical, but he, he was pretty sure that aesthetics were one of the clearest paths to certainty about the divine. Because how else could there be a match between the logical rationality of our minds and objective orderliness in the creation? Now, he wasn't working theologically at all. But as soon as I talk like that, um, you and I are probably thinking of Genesis 1, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, one of the main points of Genesis 1 is that everything is good. You know, um, God makes the light and it's good. Uh, the word there is tov, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of it, it's uh, it's not um, agathon, it's kalos, um, Carlos, which um, tends to have this more aesthetic quality. It's good in the pleasant sense, is, is, what, is what it says. That it's, um, you know, I, I'm almost tempted to, to um, call it beautiful, like if you were to translate Genesis 1 and God saw that it was beautiful, um, because this, this, this is part of the scent of that word. Anyway, it's, it's as you know, um, repeated seven times, and the seventh time in Genesis 1, it says, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's just for the dummies, right? Because we <laughs> missed it the, the first six times. Yeah. Um, and you've got to say, what is the author doing there? By this repetition of this notion of good or pleasantness or beauty, Um, It's clearly, at one level, contrasting what ancient pagans thought about the cosmos, because they were a bit scared of the cosmos. It was capricious, unpredictable, Um, who knows what lay behind that tree or that rock. Um, Everything had to be placated, randomness ruled, which doesn't sound far off what Richard Dawkins thinks about the universe, actually, Hmm. Um, the kind of the meaninglessness and lack of order in the universe that he claims. But anyway, so, so um, we believe from Genesis one on that there is orderliness, real objective orderliness built into the artwork of creation that we ought to be able to recognize. So God sees it, obviously it must be there objectively. And we're made in the image of God and There's a sense in which what Kant said about beauty and aesthetics is highly theological because our minds, which are given to us by the Creator, are able to see in creation in a variety of ways, whether it's art, music, um, beautiful ideas, beautiful arguments, um, beautiful relationships. We're able to see and experience the harmony between the objective orderliness of creation and the rational order of our minds. So that's the kind of theoretical starting point to me how I think about what beauty is. And you only have to go to the last chapters of the Bible to see that beauty is everywhere in Genesis of uh, Revelation 21:22, isn't it? I mean, the description of jewels and streets and the dimensions of the city and all of this so clearly saying it's good again. It's really good again. <laughs> that's right. We got it back. God, we got it back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not that it was completely gone. Yeah. But now, but now, so in a sense, you could almost say, I, ho- I hope I'm not pushing the boundaries too much. You could almost say the Bible en- uh, begins with beauty and ends with beauty.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then,
0: so God's people ought to be on about beauty correctly undersco- understood.
1: Yes. and 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 let me attach another idea to this that is something that's become... A more important word for me theologically uh, in the last five years or so than it ever was. In fact, it wasn't even on my radar screen before. And that's the word stewardship. We've been called to steward this orderliness, this mm-hmm. garden, this beauty that God originally created as creation. This this very intricate uh, mechanism that sustains us in some ways, um, and and to manage it and to be creative ourselves. I tell people when you think of the image of God, and you think about what God does, He creates, He sustains, He provides. You know um, that that's what He does. And and when we do those things, and He relates. And when we do those things, um, we we reflect the character and person of God. And part of that is wrapped up in the stewarding that we do of the creation around us. And that brings in the second term that we want to discuss, which is not just beauty, but truth. And truth is related to, if I can say it, a proper orderliness of what it is that God has created. A a way of seeing and engaging it that fits with the way God has designed things. Um, So talk about how how you juxtapose those, how you juxtapose truth and beauty.
0: Well, if beauty is the sort of instinctive um, mental response or the instinctive harmony between the orderliness in creation and the rational order of our minds, truth is perhaps the correct expression of that reality. Mm-hmm. So when we speak a true statement, it's a statement that uh, that is uh, an articulation of what is real about the world mm-hmm. to give. You know, most basic definition of truth. Right, right. And so, um, and so, the best um, truths ought to be beautiful, and and I love the the way someone like Albert Einstein would talk about the beauty of mathematics, mm-hmm. um, because he found it stunning that he could write a little maths thing that that I wouldn't understand, um, and and say this is beautiful precisely because it's a true statement in pithy form. About what is real out there in the cosmos, mm-hmm. um, and so that's not a bad analogy for truth, per se. Statements that describe what is objectively real in the world, and so of course, um, there's a sense in which, uh, as the centre for public Christianity, or as just an individual uh, speaker, I'm trying to do truth and beauty at the same time, and I'm so I'm using. God willing, true statements about the world that, as people understand the true statements about the world, um, cause them to experience this harmony that Immanuel Kant talked about, where uh, there's a a resonance between what's true out there and what's true in here. And so the truth statements of the gospel, of any portion of the Bible that that I'm seeking to preach, um, will, will excite beauty. Um, even those statements that are kind of, um, scary. So you think of, um, statements about judgment. Well, they're true statements, but not everyone's going to love them, but there's a way of thinking about it that is beautiful, um, because everyone longs for justice to come in the world. Mm -hmm. And so the biblical idea is that God is coming, not as the angry schoolmaster with a big stick to punish children. He's coming as the justice commissioner. To sort out the mess of the world, and sure, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Uh, but I think anyone can step back and go, you know what? I want I want God to come and sort the mess out. So here, here's an example where there is a way of thinking of a true statement that might be seen as awkward or repelling, that is viewed from another angle, beautiful, because it says there is there's going to be harmony in a world where there's breakdown. There's going to be justice where there is injustice. There's going to be peace where there is violence. And so there's a match between the truth of God's Word and the beauty that uh, we all long for.
1: Now, uh, I just came from a um, meeting with a group uh, on a conference call, actually, that was connecting people from really all around the country as businessmen. We were talking about cultural engagement. We were, and I got asked this question, he says, um, uh, we were talking about politics, which of course everyone agrees on. And, uh, um,
0: Especially over there.
1: Actually. Exactly right, yeah, don't, don't even go there. And, uh, and so uh, and the question that I got is, why do I think millennials are so different when it comes to thinking about truth? Than our generation and obviously they were looking at me and going I'm pretty grace so I've been around a while so you know um, so which I actually think is a pretty interesting question and what had triggered the what had triggered the question was the idea of of how uh, globally linked we are today versus the way it used to be when we could get away with being for lack of a better word parochial we, we lived, you know, people used to live in a very tight bubble, and very few people do that now. In fact, I remember I remember um, a story, this goes back to my time in Scotland, in which one of our closest friends in a little village that we lived in, we lived in a little village called Torfins. It was 800 people. It was 20 kilometers from Aberdeen in Scotland, and so it was rural. And our closest friend there told the story of his father, who was 70-something years old and had lived one night away from his house, his entire life, and that was by accident. He got stuck in a fog in Edinburgh and couldn't get home. Uh, but otherwise, every night of his life had been spent in the same space. And I went, "That's not just a different world. That's a different planet from the way I live." You know, and and, and so so people people's lives were in a very tight. Generally speaking, were in a very tight confine. It was the exception. Whereas today, everybody is immediately linked to worlds, you know, cultures that are vastly different than our own. And so my explanation was that the reason young people struggle with truth is because their world is much less parochial than ours was growing up, even though we had some of that. You know, I I alluded back to – I remember in the 1960s when the Telstar satellite – connected Europe with the United States for the first time, and that was a national broadcast that they were – that we were going to actually see this link happen, and we are going to listen to someone from Europe live, (laughs) okay? And look at what we're doing now. You know, here you and I are linked on that very basis, and those communications happen regularly all the time. That is an utterly, completely different way of experiencing life.
2: This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how Evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.
0: Well, um, you're right to identify um, a major issue with uh, millennials, it seems to me, Um, not being one, but uh, observing and interacting is there are so many options available to them. Um, they can find any opinion they like on any topic they like just with a Google search. And this massive expansion of possible truths has left millennials uh, suspicious that any, there can be any truth i mean, if if so many people on the internet can't even agree on the most basic thing, did Jesus live? then you know anyone claiming anything uh, is really just an option. It's this so there's a sense in which our access to m- the multiplicity of ideas and the vast range of information out there has paralysed us with ever hoping even to arrive at truth. So there's a profound cynicism uh, about truth claims from anyone. And so people often say that what millennials are really looking for is authenticity. Authenticity is the, the buzzword. Uh, they don't want people just to make truth claims. They they just want authenticity. It's got to seem real and so on. I mean, of course, authenticity by its very nature is really what they're looking for is truth. <laughs> embodied. That's right. That, that's really what authenticity is. Truth, mm-hmm. something that's substantial that's embodied. So it isn't actually that they're cynical about truth. They're cynical about truth claims. They are longing for authenticity, which is truth embodied. And so here's my one
1: word answer. Okay. Well, well that, was, <laughs> that was that's what I call a setup. <laughs> no, here here, here okay. it comes. Okay.
0: Church. Church. I genuinely believe the most powerful, in theory, okay, in Mm -hmm. theory, we can talk about woeful history of the church, which is all I've been thinking about for two years because of this CPX documentary. But uh, in theory, the most fascinating and compelling um, home for truth embodied, authenticity, is a Christian community living out the beauty of Christ, where their statements match their words, where it isn't just random claim, objectified, disembodied on the Internet. It's someone living and breathing the gospel of Christ. And that is utterly compelling that's where you find truth and beauty combined. It's authenticity. I genuinely think that what millennials don't know that they really want is a genuine church. Hmm. And, um, I mean, it's the reason why I spend, as you know, part of my time as a pastor of a local church. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I try and, you know, in theory, half and half. I, I try and balance uh, CPX and local church. But I'm, I'm committed to the local church precisely for this reason. It doesn't matter how beautiful or intellectually stimulating an article I might write for the mainstream press, or it doesn't matter how compelling and beautifully shot the documentary that we're producing is going to be. In the end, the most compelling uh, apologetic for Christianity is a local church someone may or may not be convinced by an article i write or a book you write or by a podcast that they listen to but when they come with their complaints and their cynicism face to face with a group of a hundred normal human beings who look like they believe this who live like they believe this who open their doors to anyone, whether or not they believe it, that is the best argument. That undoes all of the cynicism about truth and all of the fear that Christianity has only raped and pillaged through history. There's only so much argument you can make against that, but it's the Christian life embodied in Christian community, i.e. the church, that seems to me the answer.
1: And so that means that if you, when you really are... When you really are a good neighbor, if I can say it that way, um, and, and uh, and of course, what people are longing for in authenticity, it, that's a very relational category. I mean, it's a, yes. you, you said truth embodied, but it's really a relational category. I mean, it means I sense from you something that's real mm. and in the most profound sense of that term. Um yeah.
0: Doesn't it come from Althantos? Yeah. A, a, a genuine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're genuine. getting too
1: linguistic on me now. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And so, so I think there's something that transcends. I mean, if you listen to most people's testimonies who've come to the faith out of a skepticism, mm. it usually is out of a relationship that they have that got them started by saying, that's a way of living I'm not familiar with. And it certainly looks, appealing, attractive. How about beautiful? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, see the Christian life lived is beautiful. Um, and I love how Paul in, uh, is it Titus two ten He says, um, to Christian slaves that you're to live, you know, the honest, uh, beautiful life, uh, not to talk back, to be truthful and so on. And then he says, so that you may make the teaching about God, our savior, Attractive,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and it's and it's the cosmeto uh, verb mm-hmm.
3: there,
0: from which we get cosmetics. But it actually meant to adorn something, mm-hmm. to, to, be- to beautify something. And I've always thought, I mean, my first reaction when I listened to that passage was, how can you make the gospel beautiful? It's yeah. beautiful on its own, right right, it's, right, right, right. It's you know the 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 doctrine of Christ's self giving on the cross and resurrection for us is beautiful. You can't make it beautifuler, yeah. <laughs> but of course. But, of course, the the point is um, that Paul's making is that the life of the gospel lived out does beautify the truth. So there's a match between the the life of the gospel and the truth of the gospel, and that's what people are looking for, this this authentic, the genuine article. And it ties into something I'm sure we've talked about before offline, Um, you know, Aristotle's famous tripartite understanding of how people come to believe and 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 hold to certain convictions he said there are three dimensions there's the logos there's the pathos and there's the ethos Mm -hmm. logos is the intellectual dimension we are rational beings and we like to think our arguments and our beliefs are based on something but he said it's a fool who thinks that's how everyone comes to their viewpoint they don't they are also influenced by the pathos which is which is a kind of more like the aesthetic dimension It's where a truth resonates with our soul. It's where a speaker is able to convey the beauty of an argument or make an audience laugh. He had a a range of ways of thinking about uh, pathos. But he said ethos is the most important factor in persuasion. He he says this um, toward the the beginning um, uh, in book one of his um, book on rhetoric. Um, and he says ethos, the third dimension, is the most important part of persuasion, and and he defined ethos as, as basically the character of the persuader that conveys in- integrity to the to those listening. And he said we believe far more readily those we trust on all subjects, but especially subjects where there's room for debate. We we believe those we already trust whose character we find compelling. And I think Aristotle is absolutely right in this. We do like naked truth, logos. We, we do like um, mere aesthetics, uh, you know, the pathos. But actually, we want authenticity. We want ethos. We want to know um, the character of the persuader, which is a long-winded way of saying that that what you just said is absolutely true, and it seems to me Aristotle nailed this, but, of course, the New Testament teaches it, that the life of Christ lived in community um, is the ultimate ethos, the ultimate um, character that shows people the truth that that we hold to. So there's a huge burden we bear as individuals, sure, but as a Christian community to think what, ethos are we conveying to a world that's skeptical about any logos?
1: which is why hypocrisy is so dangerous oh, yeah. Be- because because the moment you sever what you say from who you are, um, you lose all credibility mm. and undercut the very utterance that you say you represent. Mm. Um, and, and so, um, we I I I've, I've got about four different ways I want to go, but let me let me let me try <laughs> let me try and do it this way. Um so uh, what I hear you saying is that the way for people to actually draw people to the Christian message is not only by what they say but um which is the logos, but how they say it which may get into the pathos but then how they live it, which shows that it actually means something for them.
0: Yeah, that is exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, that's, that's, That's truth, beauty, and authenticity all wrapped up in one bundle, and and Aristotle said that that's how persuasion works. I think he's right, but I think our New Testament says it even better. And you know, n- not all. Uh, we should also mention the power of the spirit, mm-hmm. uh, the dunamis. Right, uh, right. And, you know, Aristotle wouldn't have known that, so we can forgive him for not including it. Um, <laughs> but but I think that I think what the spirit does is he he empowers us to live lives of sort of you know the intellectual truth, um, the aesthetic beauty, but also the authenticity of ethic. Um, and, and th- this is the most compelling thing. And when you hear, um, what prompted me to go into that little Aristotelian rant mm-hmm. was when, when he said, when you hear Christians give their testimony, they will often say
3: mm-hmm.
0: it, that it was a sort of combination of hearing, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a, a message of the gospel, and then seeing the beautiful life of the Christian, and the whole package drew them uh, toward the truth. And, um, but often, of course, yeah, our skeptical friends don't admit that that their belief formation or their skepticism is just as much a combination of all three factors
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, as anyone who's a believer. They claim that it's all about the Logos. Oh, if there were more evidence for Jesus, I'd believe. Uh-huh. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you're, just, you're a human being. Uh-huh. And human beings arrive at their positions through this sort of messy Messy range of things.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I, the the other place I was thinking about going, which I will go briefly, is the whole language of adornment that you get out of Scripture. The idea of the of the picture of what it is that we present, the portrait that we paint uh, of who Christ is. The fact that we are made in His image. The fact that the church is called Christ's body. I, I like to say, why is the church called Christ's body? It's His rep- It's the representation of His presence. Through individuals in a world in which he is seemingly absent, mm. and so um, you know, so you can think about the church in, in that kind of a way. Um, mm. and the other the other adornment word I don't know if it's an adornment word, but the the other idea that came to me while you were talking about adornment was the idea of being a pleasant, a sweet aroma. You know, mm. an aroma that's pleasing to God, mm. uh, something that wafts out and people catch it. Um, mm. That that image, which is, um, you know, maybe maybe there is a theology to be had in words that, that are um, that are descriptive of the reflection that we give of God in the world. Um, and
0: glory is another exactly. Word that very much has this sense of the shining brilliance of the thing.
1: Exactly. Light yeah. in the midst of darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, all the radiance might be a, a word that we would use as a synonym. Mm-hmm. Um, all very important things. There's one other area I want to make sure we touch on before we before we. Wrap up, and um, because you've mentioned to me that you think C.S. Lewis speaks into this space very nicely, and so I wanted to give you a chance to kind of lay that out for us. I mean, if if we if in the second segment we we, we you know we go from Aristotle to C.S. Lewis, that's probably a nice move. So uh, um, so uh, why don't you why don't you put out on the table what you have in mind when you talk about how Lewis addressed this?
0: Well, of course, Lewis is famous for his sort of intellectually robust argument you know, any of the sort of intellectual fans of Lewis will point to his mere Christianity or the problem of pain or God in the dock or his you know massive collection of essays, um, which I have in audiobook and and listen to on rotation, hundreds of essays, some of which were never published um, in, in books anyway. Um, it's quite clear that C.S. Lewis um, believed in intellectual argument, of course. But at some point, In his um, journey as an apologist, um, a a word he accepted very cautiously, at some point he felt that what he ought to be doing was helping people want Christianity to be true.
3: Hmm.
0: So that they were in a position to see that it was true. But he felt that, that so many people couldn't even see the beautiful ideas of the Christian faith. Um, they, they couldn't see the beauty of it or the, 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 beauty of the concepts or questions that Christianity answers. Um, and so this is why he started to write the sort of the fantasy literature, um, the, in all that, you know, those beautiful allegories, I don't know if we call them allegories, this sort of Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, the Narnia series and, mm-hmm. and all this all other stuff. He was absolutely sort of driven by this idea that if people could see in another story, just how beautiful it is to um, face the darkness head-on and to long for a saviour that was good but not tame. Um, if people could sort of feel that, resonate um, with the beauty of it, then they'd be in a position to see the gospel. If they found themselves wishing such a thing were true in principle, he was better placed to then say, well, actually, the Christian message is the answer to your deepest longings.
1: The, the interesting thing about that there's an irony in that, and that is that he's actually saying if you can adorn these ideas in a certain way that comes at people from a fresh angle, mm. where they don't expect it, and boom, there it is, and they, and yeah. they attach to the idea they might become open to the way in which that idea has been expressed in the Christian faith. And he's building a bridge. And the bridge and he, is the adornment. Yeah.
0: He, he even believed that the pagan myths, I mean, this is controversial, you yeah. know, for some Christians. He, he actually believed the pagan myths were, in a sense, God's preparation of Greek culture uh, to resonate with the beauty of truths that would one day be revealed. Hmm. So, so many of the great myths he felt did come to their conclusion in the historical fact mm-hmm. of Christ mm-hmm. that answers so many of the Greek longings. Um, and I think it's a beautiful way of thinking about it. And, and he's got this essay that he gave um, at the Socratic Club here, here in Oxford hmm. um, in the 40s. And the, the, uh, the paper that he gave, um, it's been published in various places, but it originally just a paper he gave in a debate context called Is Theology Poetry? Hmm. Um, And he's really answering the question, is it mere poetry that is just beautiful statements that have no reality? But he ends up saying it's poetry in the profound sense of truth that connects you with what is objectively real about the universe and will make your heart sing and will bring clarity to the whole world. And the essay finishes with that very famous uh, line of of C.S. Lewis where he says, um, I won't get it exactly right, uh, where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, S-U-N, not only because I can see it, but because by it I see everything else. Hmm. He believed a proper understanding of Christianity lit up the entire world, Mm -hmm. the world of the arts, the world of Warfare, the world uh, of heroism, of altruism. He felt that the Christian faith was the great spotlight on the truth of the world. Um, By it, I see everything else. was kind of I, I think his sort of motto in apologetics.
1: Well, it's what beauty does, doesn't it? I mean, when when you when you encounter something that's beautiful, and, it, uh, you know, uh, way well, I like to say it, it causes you to stop, you uh-huh. know. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I, I just came back from Vancouver teaching at Regent College and I was – and I had this little ten-minute walk every morning from the place where I, they had me staying to the, to the classroom. And walking down this very dumpy street. There's construction like crazy going on off to my right. And I'd walk down this and there was this little stack – I guess they were blue bonnets. I'm not quite sure exactly what kind of flower they were, but they were bright, bright blue and i would find myself going by and going what a beautiful spot of the walk you know i just, and, and there were there were you know if i hadn't been on a schedule i would say you know i just want to sit here and stop and look <laughs> at this beautiful surprise in the midst of everyday urban life that is mm. that is grabbing my attention as i walk on to the affairs of the day and mm. and, and and i think that's what beauty does it it's, it causes you to stop. It grabs you, and and there's something compelling about it. And when Christianity is adorned with beauty, it causes people to stop. And maybe, and especially if it surprises them, you know, it causes them to stop. And they, and and, and you go, I'm just so grateful that in the midst of this boring 10-minute walk in which I'm crossing streets and dodging construction and I'm not even on a sidewalk I'm – I'm walking on a sidewalk that's been made by feet because they're using the sidewalk on the other side. This little spot of oasis has hit me. Yeah. Um, and, and so Christians are this uh, authentic life of truth and beauty and an appreciation of truth and beauty. Uh, hits us. There's one other idea I want to try and sneak in here. We're really tight for time, and it is I want to come back to the myths idea. I think the myths idea – and this is what I tell people about how to interact with culture. The culture grasps and groans for truth, and it's got all kinds of stuff mixed in it, but there are longings in culture that you see that align with the Bible. And one of the great tricks of engagement is finding those spots of longing and connecting to them, and pulling people towards the gospel through them.
0: Uh, yes, that—that that is uh, my life's ambition, and I know it is yours. Yeah. And and CPX is uh, exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to find what are the longings, uh, and we, we, we try and do this from everything, from the arts to food to uh, science, uh, history. What are the longings people have? And how can we show them that those longings are fulfilled in Christ?: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, there, there, there is a it really is a, a reconnecting of people to the creation and the orderliness and the yeah. beauty that God has given, so that when he creates, at the very end, he's able, at the very end, to say, "This was good, very good," or, as you said, this was beautiful, this mm-hmm. is very beautiful." And that truth resonates from the creative hands of a good and creative God. Well, John, I want to thank you for taking time to have us kind of meditate on truth and beauty <laughs> and creation and engagement. They're a combination of things that I think people don't normally think about as they think about whatever mission and task God has given them. I think you've helped us to think about it in a in a much more inviting and healthy way. So I thank you for being a part of this. Thanks so much. Yeah. And we thank you for being a part of The Table, and we look forward to hearing, uh, seeing you again soon.
3: Thanks
0: for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.